Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell, episode 119, recorded July 8, 2011. There is no I in pod. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, phone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. Hi, folks. It's Denise Howell, and you've tuned in for This Week in Law. We're so excited to be here. We have two guests in studio. Uh, one is Daniel Koken of Sector Labs. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Hi, Denise. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having us. It's great to have you. Daniel is involved in litigation. His company, Sector Labs, is involved with get it, vi- sorry, <laughs> litigation with Apple over the term video pod, which is a product that they make. Um, so we're going to talk about that. We also have Daniel's lawyer, Anna Christian, with us. Hello, Anna. Hi, Denise. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much to the two of you for joining us. And with us again is Evan Brown. Hello, Evan. Hey, Denise. Happy Friday to you. It's uh, As usual, it's great to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Me too. All right, so let's, we've got a lot to talk about this week, um, lots of interesting stuff going on, lots of outrage out there on the internets about various terms of service floating around, and I do want to get to those, but since we have uh, Daniel and Anna here, I want to get right to their dispute and have them bring us up to speed about Videopod. Uh, Daniel, why don't you first describe what it does? Well, you know, before I even go down that road, I just want to uh, say you know, thanks for having us on the, on the show. Uh, mm-hmm. I am definitely part of the Twit Army. I, I am a big fan of Leo Laporte, and, uh, you know, I listen to so many of his other podcasts, and I just have to point out that uh, you know, we all love tech and we all listen to these tech stories. Um, and I, I really do feel that everyone should, that I think Twill should be required reading for everyone that uh, follows those tech stories because we all have these opinions ba- about them. But on this show, you get this really insightful breakdown. Uh, I mean, listening to Evan Brown uh, and you go back and forth about these, uh, these legal issues it, it um, it's a very enlightening experience, and you don't necessarily get that perspective. Uh, he's got a lot of opinions um, uh, on the other shows, and so required reading, definitely. Thank you so much. Yeah. We really appreciate that. Yeah, and uh, you know we're full of our own share of opinions too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so you know, I so I I want to start out by saying that you know Anna and I are. Uh, we're on the same team, and, you know, but we have very different perspectives um, about the case, and, and this is a really great opportunity to share a case that we feel very strongly about, um, and uh, in many ways for different reasons. Uh, uh, you know, a different set of circumstances brought us together. Um, um, we both feel that um, that uh, that, uh, but we one thing we do have in common is is we definitely feel that trademark law is written. Uh, such that the odds are skewed in the favor of those with uh, with more resources, and um, and you know I'm all about competition, and you know capitalism runs through my veins and, and my arteries. Well, let's, let's just say that my circulatory system 
saturated with capitalism. Um, but that that you know, a level playing field needs to exist in a um, in the legal environment as well. Um, and uh, with with respect to trademark law in particular, um, the uh, how do I how do I best put this uh, the the odds are in skew, they're skewed toward uh, they're they're in favor of you know, large corporations with infinitely more resources than um, someone with um, very um, limited resources and uh, foc- needs to focus on running their business and uh, doesn't necessarily have a ninety percent of their time to allocate to uh, uh, taking on you know battles like this. So. Right. Um, so you have a product. It's a video projector. It is. It is. It's a video projection system that uh, I first started working on in 2000. Um, and the kind of project name back then uh, was Nano Projector because it was uh, I had figured out a way to uh, to take a conference conference room um, sized projector. Back in the day, they were massive, big boxes, and I figured out a way to bring it down to about the size of a, a deck of playing cards. Um, Hence and, the name Pod. Um, well, the 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 name the name Video Pod kind of evolved over a little bit of time. But we, when I had originally communicated the idea to, and I was courting uh, a potential investor, I needed to build a mock-up of it, and I ripped apart a little Casio portable television set, uh, and uh, we started referring to it as the Pod. It was just very kind of small and. Um, but then we had to take a break from the project for a little bit because the cost of uh, LEDs were was was just too astronomically expensive to make a product viable at that point. This is going back to 2000 2001. Uh, so when we went back to the project, we uh, ultimately decided on on VideoPod because we thought that it, it best uh, it was most compatible and complemented the form factors that we had explored through the process of developing this this device that was designed for the living room uh, versus the conference room. So we were looking for organic uh, kind of uh, uh, shapes and what have you. And so um, there was a spawn of of a lot of those conversations. Um, Right. Did you think at the time when you settled on that name that you would be getting a knock on the door from Apple or did it just not occur to you? No. You know, the first time that we had filed uh, for the trademark, um, we had a we got a kickback because uh, we chose to not have a space between the two words. Uh, and JVC, I, I believe it's kind of it's hard to remember uh, kind of uh, uh, if it was JVC or if it was another company, but I think it was JVC had a a, a dongle, a cable dongle uh, that they called VideoPod, and so that was actually more of a concern of mine. Um, Apple, at the time, uh, the iPod was rather insignificant. I mean, we all kind of see it, uh, them everywhere now, but at the time, uh, iPod was just a, a small little music player that uh, was not in our space. Um, and in fact, when we did file. Um, the trademark, the the um, iPod mark was classified under audio devices and had nothing to do with video. And after we had filed, um, Apple had actually amended their mark to include uh, video capability. Right. 
So, Anna, you guys have had a trial at this point and are just waiting for final word from the court. Is that no, right? We're actually right in the middle of the trial right now. Okay. So Apple filed their brief on the merits last week. So mm -hmm. that essentially is their, if we were doing this in a courtroom, that would have been their argument. Got it. So our brief is due on July 30th. Mm -hmm. um, 15 days after that, Apple will file a rebuttal brief, and then we'll be waiting for the decision from the court. Gotcha. So it's actually, you know, pretty exciting that we're right in the middle of it, and we haven't uh, yet submitted all of our arguments to the court. Mm -hmm. So um, at uh, this point, Apple, I'm sorry, I interrupted. I was, I was going to ask who your judge is. You know, this is the this is the TTAB, isn't it? The this trademark is in front of the trial. TTAB. The we yeah. have a panel of three judges, and I'm sorry, I don't know them by name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> off the you top will. of my head, I'm certain of that. <laughs> I will. I will. I don't. I can't tell you that right now. Um, yeah. But there will be a panel of three judges, and they will read the testimony that's been entered in the case, and they'll re they'll read both of the briefs, and then they'll uh, come up with a decision, draft an opinion. I'm right. hoping within about six months of the close of the rebuttal brief. Um, but they have limited resources, so it can be up to a year after the final brief before we can get a decision. Yeah, and we're, we're in the fifth year of this uh, battle. I mean, it's been one motion after another uh, response to this uh, filing and this due date, and it's just been one thing after another. So, like, you know, the mm -hmm. fact that we're now at the fifth year and we're finally able to present our evidence to the courts is kind of what I was trying to allude to before, is that it's, it's, a, it's a legal gauntlet that you have to get through just to get a judge to look at the evidence. And, you know, I, if I have to lose, I don't want to lose... Uh, because I chose uh, not to take on the incredible level of stress and uncertainty that comes along with a legal battle. Um, I want to lose. And again, I don't want to lose. But if I do, it's got to be because the facts didn't support or don't support or the evidence don't support my claim. And, right. and, and that, that's okay with me. And, but then again, this has been five years and there's a reason why I'm still here. So, Anna, along those lines, uh, Sector Labs is not the only company to have been sued by Apple over Pod, is it? No. Hun hundreds of companies have right. um, been either sued or had an opposition brought against them. However, uh, Sector Labs is the only one that has gone to trial with Apple mm -hmm. over a trademark name. And I credit that to, one, Daniel's tenacity, to my availability to be on the case. Um, <laughs> You know, and just the circumstances that have brought us here, I consider myself very lucky to be involved in this case. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's rare in general that that cases go to trial anymore. I think there is, are a lot of interests in settling cases early, but I do think that it's really important, especially in a case like this, um, where such a large company has been able to effectively have a monopoly over certain words, um, to really be able to, to fight against that and... Uh, bring this to the attention of the courts and the public and see if we can maybe get some changes in, uh, in place. Right. Well, you guys uh, aren't the only ones battling Apple on trademark issues out there. In fact, you know, you could probably do um, a whole show just on those issues. Right. Uh, but most recently, um, just in the last day or so, right, Apple uh, lost its legal action against Amazon over App Store. Well, it, the um, court didn't enter a preliminary injunction, isn't right. it? Or it didn't didn't dis, it didn't 
uh, grant uh, Amazon's motion to dismiss, right? So we can't say oh, that it's so lost the, yet. So the suit goes on. Right. Yeah, right. the but, suit goes uh, on, Apple but the injunction was denied. Yeah. That's a good sign, though, because uh, to that means that the court at least has looked at the merits of the claims and decided that there's enough there to go forward. Um, how does this shade, uh, you know, what's your reaction to this, Anna? You know, one thing that struck me when I was looking at um, the the court's order denying the preliminary injunction was they said that the, the term App Store wasn't strictly generic. Um, and I think that's something that's really interesting um, as far as our case goes. One of the claims that Apple is making is that VideoPod is descriptive mm. and therefore can't be registered as a trademark without acquiring secondary meaning. So I, I think that that issue is one that is very interesting because it is such a gray area. You know, what is the line between a descriptive mark and a suggestive mark? Yeah, and if, and if I can uh, interject here, um, th this has been a, a, a very bizarre um, uh, claim to to deal with, uh, with with which to deal, because uh, you know from my perspective, and this kind of goes back to my my point earlier, is that we have different perspectives, um, and those different sort of circumstances kind of keep you know uh, uh, we we have to kind of meet uh, and see eye to eye to actually move forward with uh, our defense, and um, you know from my perspective, I I'm sitting here going. Tell me what a video pod is. Yeah, I want. I would love for one person to tell me precisely what it describes. Um, and I, not a single person has ever been able to say, "Oh, it's this or this." It's not like I've started. Not like I've trademarked yellow pencil, and uh, it's pretty mm -hmm. obvious that I'm that I'm selling yellow pencils, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so that that's the that's the issue that I've had with this. You know how that translates into the courtroom, how that translates into law. That's the challenge here. See, this is a really interesting point to me because I looked through Apple's brief that they filed on June 30th, the one where they're making all of these arguments as to why there's a likelihood of confusion and that your trademark application should be denied and, and all of that. And at the end, they throw in this argument that the mark Videopod is merely descriptive and it's not uh, entitled to trademark protection at all. And that's the reason why... Uh, that's an alternate reason why you know your trademark application should not mature to, to registration, let alone the the likelihood of confusion argument that they're making. And I thought that was a really dangerous argument for Apple to make. I mean, and I know that they're trying that Apple is trying to hang its hat on purported admissions that you made in the discovery process. And I haven't read the deposition transcripts or your answers to interrogatories or whatever. But it, it, notwithstanding any admission you have made, they're trying to ask they're they're asking the the trademark trial and appeal board to make a finding that video pod is merely descriptive and if that's what the finding effect is going to be where does that leave apple in it any assertion that it may make in dis, in non-descriptiveness of pod in the word ipod because then all they have they have left is the letter i right and we all know how broadly used that as a prefix you know other companies besides i or besides apple use ipod so th that just seemed really dangerous to me and i'm wondering what yours and anna's reactions are to that i mean th did you get that same kind of weirdness when I, you first read it I, I i did i mean from the very beginning i i thought that um apple uh was almost arguing against itself um and that if if in fact they did 
uh, and do win that they're actually setting their own precedent against their own mark and their own their own their own uh, trademark. So I, it's it's been a very bizarre uh, um, account for us, um, and you know we're trying not to look that far into the future because it's more a matter of of dealing with the the claims as they are today. Um, but that that that's my perspective. I don't know about you. I do also think it's it's pretty interesting. Um, I do think that the brand iPod is a fanciful word since there is not a space. I mean, it's one word iPod that is basically made up. So, um, but what I do think interest is interesting is that I think maybe in I don't remember 2008 2009 Apple filed for registration of the word pod mm. itself. So for them to argue that video pod is descriptive, Daniel in his original application did disclaim the word video, so that leaves pod as the predominant part of his mark. So for them to argue that pod is descriptive then in turn mm-hmm. puts their registration or their application for registration in danger. So right. I, I did also find that interesting. I also find it interesting that they chose to hang their hat on Daniel's admissions as a party. Um, mm. And this is something that should be a finding of law that the opinion of the party doesn't really matter. And that's something that the TTAB did point out in an order denying Apple's motion for summary judgment on the descriptiveness issue. So right. I, I I don't agree with them, <laughs> obviously, right. but I do find it interesting that that's what they chose to hang their hat on instead of actually well, going through and arguing whether it was actually descriptive or not. Yeah, sure. You know, I'd like to address that for a second because what what really happened, and, I, I, you know, there's a chat room that's listening to this right now, and, uh, you know, we all tend to follow comments, and I found myself uh, reading an Ars Technica article uh, written about the case, and it was really well written, and... Uh, uh, very uh, remained very objective, but some of the commenters didn't. Uh, the uh, yeah, commenters didn't quite uh, understand some of the the background. So of course, I decided to break it down a little bit and in the nicest possible way. Uh, and uh, a few uh, days later, maybe a week and a half later, uh, Apple's uh, attorneys contacted my attorney at the time and uh, said I that wasn't yet involved in the case she was this not time. she would have been very I upset would have with advised me. him otherwise <laughs> she would have been very upset with me but uh, you know I I, I said that uh, the trademark uh, describes my my products uh, form and function and and you know I I'm not a trademark attorney and you know I what I really meant to say is that it was suggestive of of my my products mm-hmm. form and function, especially since there are multiple products, and we even now we still have a variety of different form factors that uh, we can we can go we can move forward with, um, and and so to use that and throw that back in my face and and make that one more. Uh, thing that I had to deal with, uh, spend time, money, defending. Um, it was just one more way to, to knock me out before I ever get to court again. And mm-hmm. that, that, that's frustrating. It's very frustrating. It, it sounds revealing of Apple's perspective on trademark law in general. You know, very early in this conversation, you were talking about the, you didn't use this terminology or this nomenclature, but what you were describing is an apparent disparity of power, you know, you've got these huge monolithic corporations uh, bro- uh, broadly asserting these rights, which may or may not be all that strong against lesser-positioned parties like a, you know, like startups, like like your enterprise, and you know that really um, 
gets that really misapprehends or misunderstands what trademark law is all about from the the get go. Um, it's really a consumer protection type of of system. It's to protect members of the consuming public from being confused as to the source of of goods uh, or services or or, or what have you. Uh, It's not something that is inherently proprietary to its owner. And it's on this point that we can draw a really pretty uh, distinct conceptual line between patents and copyrights on one side, which kind of originate, and you know, some pure intellectual property purists will say that patents and copyrights are the only form of intellectual property, and they will say that trademarks aren't pure intellectual right. property because this really is something that belongs to the, the consuming public and not the owner of that. So the fact that Apple would rely so much on your admissions and whatever you would say and you know, lacking an understanding, you're lacking an understanding of what it means for a mark to be descriptive just really mm-hmm. shows that they're looking at it something proprietary to them and not relevant to the analysis that you w- would seem to be appropriate, go out and, and do a $30,000 survey uh, right. as to what members of the consuming public would say about this. You know, Evan, I think that's a really interesting point. Apple did not submit any survey evidence at all to uh, back up their claims, either of likelihood of confusion or descriptiveness. Yeah, they probably didn't have the cash to pay an expert. <laughs> <laughs> they, spent it, they spent it all on my case. Trust me. Trust me. It's all gone. It's all gone. Uh, you know, and I, I just like to point out really fast, Evan, that uh, you know, I'm not saying that, that Apple is, is being anti-competitive, um, but I'm, I am saying that the law is structured such that um, it's difficult for me to fight back um, in, 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 you know, with, with respect to trademark uh, law. And... Um, you know, and that's all I want to do is I want to have a, a fair fight. I want to be able to, you know, get my facts heard. And th- this is just a tactic uh, that the legal system gives uh, these large corporations to use as a way of, of just uh, getting us out of the way as quickly as possible. Because no one wants to take on five or four, four, five, six years of, of uh, uncertainty and stress. It's just it's, it's a daunting idea. Right. For anybody who listened last week, we had Jason Aniello on mm. who got DMCA'd uh, on his keynote Twitter endeavors. Um, he just didn't want to, you know. Denise, you're Cyloning a little bit. Oh, I am? Yeah. Um, there you go. Hmm. There you go. It's better now, I think. Okay. Better now. little Skype pick up there. Um, anyway, it's Cylons totally understandable why someone would decide not to. Uh, take the road that you have taken, Daniel, and, and pursue Denise, I have to call you back up. Okay. Well, um, I, mean, I can address that while you call her back. Okay, um, that'd be great. You know, I, I had an opinion because I, I listened to last week's uh, episode, and uh, it was it was it was very interesting because um, I believe his name is uh, Jason Nuello, uh, the, the 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 peanut tweeter, which is a tongue twister, and I was really hoping I wasn't going to say that uh, in the worst possible way, but um, uh, you know. He um, he decided, uh, despite the fact that he, I think that a lot of people uh, in the legal community, a lot of uh, people have, uh, are quite in support of his position, um, that uh, fair use was is, was uh, was something that could be claimed, um, and I, I respect his decision to. Uh, you know, not take on uh, that legal gauntlet, but uh, I, I disagree. I and, and which actually, and also it brings me to my point because it, there has to be some kind of solution. There has to be some way to level the playing field. And I, I just wish that 
the the people that are in support because he has an opportunity to make a difference. I mean, he has a really strong claim. He has, and 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 you know, we need people to stand their ground and to 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 set these precedents so that um, you know future projects and ideas aren't just uh, shut down before they have an opportunity to really get going. And a lot of people really enjoyed his work. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I can respect his his decision to, to not do that as well. It's it's not fun. No, yeah. it's not. Jarndyce versus Jarndyce has not gone anywhere since the Dickensian era, and, and in any case, it might have gotten worse. Uh, but we do appreciate you guys taking time out and giving us some insights into your case, and uh, letting us know that it's out there and going forward. And uh, thank you keep it up we'll uh, we'll look for some updates as the trial continues yes thanks denise for having us you can um evan it sounds like you found our docket so you'll be able to read our brief that will be filed on uh by july 30th sure so. yeah I'll, I'll take a look thanks. sure it'll be yeah. great i gotta point out one thing by the way and, and i and i know you're gonna be very frustrated with me for doing this because she's just waiting for me to open my mouth but um, maybe she's gonna get all mark garrigos on <laughs> you and say okay <laughs> This is over. <laughs> There's one thing you got to know about this um, is you know, I uh, my fantasy th- through this through this process uh, was originally on before Anna came on was to to get someone who was literally right out of school um, and because it, it, you you need a certain kind of enthusiasm that I have not been able to find. Uh, in a law firm, and, and Anna has she's right out of school. This is her first uh, case. I started. I met with Daniel two days after I was um, sworn in to the bar back in. Good for you. Back in December That's... of two thousand nine. So, and she's been kicking some serious <laughs> butt. Thank so, you, Daniel. Yeah, absolutely, you. absolutely. I love that. So, what I do it's want good. you both to hang with us um, as yeah. we move on to some other topics. And uh, we'll take a break and thank our sponsor, Netflix. But then I want to get into, and I think, Daniel, this is a great topic for you, too, is uh, there has been a lot of discussion this week around various terms of service. And uh, so I want to um, try and unpack those a bit. But first, I want to thank Netflix, because our episode here today is brought to you by Netflix. You can watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac iPhone, iPad, or TV instantly, all streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. You can do this instantly in so many different ways. You've got uh, the Netflix on your Xbox, any other game system, uh, your phone, your iPad. If um, you've got a Roku box, you've got a great way to access there. And my favorite thing about watching Netflix in any of these ways is that they really get this um, equation that if you're paying a fee, you should get something back for that. And what you get is an amazing service, first of all, that's very reliable and an enjoyable user experience. And you get the banishment of the world of commercials, um, unlike various other services out there where you're paying, you know, just on your normal cable, you're paying, but uh, you're barraged by commercials all the time. What you're getting uh, with Netflix instead is a very nice, refreshing experience that uh, gets you right to your content, which I just love. Um, and doing it instantly is, you know, even better for us in this instant gratification era. 
um, you can begin watching on one device and go to another. So that's even uh, more acknowledging of how people consume their video these days. And whichever way you choose to do it, you can watch as many movies and TV shows as you want, anytime you want. And you can cancel anytime. So go over to Netflix if you're not already a member, netflix.com slash twit. Be sure to use this URL when you sign up. And we thank them for their support of This Week in Law. Uh, Now we'll uh, get back to talking about some more legal issues here. And one thing that has been much on people's mind this week that I've just seen over and over and over again is the um, unfolding saga of the Dropbox Terms of Service. Uh, Just to set the stage for this, um, this is just another example of something that we talk about a lot on the show where, um, and it it actually um, fits very well with uh, the theme of Anna and Daniel's case, not because it involves trademark issues, but it, beca- it involves a power situation um, where a site puts forth a bunch of legalese and people either have to accept it or not use the service. And we're just, I think, entering the era where there's some accountability about all that and people are starting to delve into terms of service and really look at them and decide, well, does this make sense for me or not? And that's what people did uh, with the Dropbox terms. And it turned out that Dropbox was granting itself a fairly broad license when you read through the terms. Um, And there were some alarm bells that went off. Now, it's not an uncommonly broad license by any means. So what I want to get into and talk about here is both um, Dropbox's reaction, which was to change the terms a bit and make them seem a bit more palatable, and uh, also the extent to which these companies really do need to grant themselves a license or they cannot function, they cannot provide the services that everyone wants so badly. Um, so, Evan, let's uh, first get your take on, on all of this and uh, where things stand now. I guess the first thing I would want to comment on is you were saying there was this in, there was an increasing awareness of these types of things, and I see that as part of the Mayan prophecy of December 21st, 2012, you know, everybody's saying the world's going to end. This is actually just a big transformation in consciousness and a, a higher awareness of the, the uh, uh, what terms of service says, say, is just an indication of that. Um, but all seriousness aside, um, <laughs> these, these types of, of issues do come up a lot. And, and you know, looking at this as, uh, you know, from the position of, of legal counsel, you know, I draft these things for for clients all the time, you know, who either are, uh, you know, distributing content or providing um, you know, software as a service, some kind of cloud application or something like that, you know, the, um, you know from the position of legal counsel who writes these things, um, you want to be protective of your client's interests and make sure that they're not, um, uh, you know, that they're, first of all, that they're authorized to do what they need to do to run the service. And with Dropbox, clearly th- what is very essential to this is the ability to store a copy of the work, you know, of the, the content, or as Dropbox's, Dropbox defines it, you know, stuff uh, on the, the Dropbox server. So, uh, you know, one can clearly empathize with the interest in, in protecting um, the, the interest there. That impulse to be protective of those interests has as its natural corollary uh, the risk of being overreaching and too grabby when it comes to this stuff. And that is what gets people's uh, sensibilities riled up about this stuff, saying, hey, um, uh, you know, it looks, and, and, and 
there was a great article by uh, Brady Chris, a, uh, a lawyer uh, out east somewhere. Uh, Brady Chris ESQ dot com uh, is her her site, and there was uh, she summed it up in her analysis of the Dropbox terms of service to say, and this was before some more recent updates. She summed it up says this basically leaves all of your stuff wide open for whatever. Uh, you know, because she ran through a logical framework there that said Dropbox essentially could take the photos that you had uploaded and plaster them all over uh, Times Square if they modified their terms of service, which they reserved the right to do without any notice to the uh, the, the user. And that has its problematic aspects, which are beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. But that's the, the, the corollary of that is when you're too grabby as a service provider, you run the risk of that criticism in uh, public opinion and public perception, and that it's all well-founded. You can see both sides of it. Um, I, I guess what really may be underlying all of this is um, a problem that is even more fundamental to the, the system, and that is something that we bring up a lot on this, some of the, the, the strangeness of copyright law and the application of the principles of copyright law in the digital age. We're still so obsessed. I don't know what I mean by, I don't know who is the we. Uh, I guess it's when I'm talking about the we, I'm talking about the um, Congress as of 1976 when they drafted the most recent iteration of the Copyright Act. So when I say we, that's actually what I'm talking about. We're so obsessed in the current Copyright Act on the right of making copies and distributing those copies and publicly performing those copies, whereas these days the digital infrastructure that we have, services like Dropbox or the poster child example of this, it makes less sense to be focused and obsessed with that right to copy. Uh, it, it doesn't make as much sense to, to be so obsessed about that as what it did in a pre-digital era. So perhaps what we're seeing here is a certain um, illness or a certain um, maladap- mal- malady of the way that, uh, that things have, are applied in this day and age. And so uh, we've got this weird uh, back and forth when it comes to these terms of service, the rights of the service provider and the public outrage on both sides of this equation. What this is symptomatic of is, is this uh, larger, more systemic problem of copyright law in general, that if we were to address that, it would eliminate these types of brouhaha's uh, from arising over, over terms of service revisions all the time. Right. Uh, Anna, have you uh, looked into any of all of this, and do you have any thoughts on uh, the breadth or... Um, narrowly tailoredness of terms of service on sharing type sites? You know, Denise, I do, I find this area interesting in general mm-hmm. because I have to admit that I am one of the guilty parties who checks the box and says, yes, mm-hmm. I have read and acknowledge and I agree. And I almost never read the terms of service, mm-hmm. um, which slapped me on the wrist. I know I'm not supposed to do that, especially as an attorney. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do agree with with Evan in that the copyright laws that were enacted in the 70s don't really seem to fit our uh, modern way of sharing and storing information. And, uh, you know, does 
the average user of Dropbox understand what it means when Dropbox says, you know, we reserve the right to make derivative copies of your files to transfer them, to store them in other places. Does the average person know what that means? And, you know, what are what, if anything, can they do if they want to use that service? I mean, those are the issues that I'm seeing. Right. I almost feel like in today's day and age, companies have a responsibility to get this right. That it used to be easier for companies to just sort of throw some boilerplate language out there and not have it matter um, either to them or to their users. It was just sort of there as a fallback CYA. The lawyer said we needed to have this kind of thing. And now I think it matters. Now I think that, you know, people are really relying on these services, not just, you know, for their sharing of photos with the new puppy with mom and dad, but, you know, for their livelihood. And this begins to make a big difference economically, both for the company and the users. And I I also think it's fascinating that, you know, this degree of accountability that's coming into play and the fact that we've got Brady Chris, there's Chris Fulmer out there who's got a blog, uh, his Fulmer law firm blog, who's been following this in sort of a blow-by-blow way and taking the time to rewrite the license language in a more clear and... um, the word I'm looking for, a uh, fitting way that gives the, the rights that the company needs and uh, makes sure that the users understand that, you know, yes, they are granting a license, but it's not any more broad than it should be. Uh, Daniel, as an entrepreneur and a person who launches companies in this space, do you uh, have any thoughts on this? Uh, you know, I do, but uh, before I go there, I, I'm I'm a user of Dropbox. I, mm-hmm. I'm I'm an end user, and uh, I, I do have one question to ask in regard to what precisely uh, they believe they have the right to duplicate or copy. Um, is it stuff that I go uh, and share with people, or is it the stuff that is being shared just between my own computers? Because I, you know, I, there's an assumption there that I mean I'm going to be using that service for uh, editing my business plan. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of confidential information that I'm using. So does it apply to the files that are just sitting there uh, in in uh, my folders without being shared? I can think of a couple things to, to say on that. Um, I think that that was one of the, the pain points that were addressed in the, the most recent revisions because mm-hmm. it was first said that uh, we have the right to all of your stuff and uh, we have this license to all of your stuff and stuff was defined as all your files and information and and yeah you know, i guess you can't define a term by using itself files and information and other things um and so one of the revisions made it clear that it was all of your stuff that you actually uh you know upload to dropbox or you know make a part of your use of the service i'm not defining it exactly how they did but yeah. it it narrowed the 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 uh, rights to that or narrowed the scope of those rights but we we so that's one way in which it was addressed the other point i would want to make on this is that thus far in our conversation about dropbox here we're just talking about copyright and that is the the right as we've alluded to already to to make copies of a work to distribute them to publicly display them to make derivative works you know change it up um, those are separate and apart from other proprietary rights that you as the you know quote unquote owner of this content may have and may be able to assert to stop 
Dropbox from using that stuff in a, in a certain way that you would object to. If you have uploaded things that constitute trade secrets, um, and there is you know this kind of understanding, and you know we would again need to look at the terms of service or the privacy policy or whatever to see the the contours of what expectation you have that they will keep that stuff private. You may or may not, and you know this of course is just a, an academic discussion and not particular to a, a particular matter. But the analysis would have to look at. Um, you know whether or not there were some other proprietary rights outside of of copyright, for example, the right of protection that you have against the misappropriation of of your company's trade secrets against disclosure by Dropbox or any other cloud provider to to third parties. So it's it's a, it's a larger question than just copyright. Well, I'll tell you, I, I have a, a point that uh, that I'd like to make, and it. it it seems incredibly simple, the, the solution to problems like this. Um, just stop using the service, right? I mean, isn't that the best thing you can possibly do? We all complain about Facebook and, and uh, our, in, our the, the lack of privacy and, and control over who has access to that information. But we really can just stop using the services. But what does that say about us that we can't and that we become so complacent and just so willing to accept whatever is thrown our way just so we can participate in these so the in these in these services uh you know so um I, I think there is something that we can all do. Do we need to necessarily pass legislation that says that, that uh, these companies need to uh, force their users to plug in a USB device that slaps us in the face before we use their service and say, that, you know, to remind us that you're not, you, you know, don't expect privacy when you use this service because I think that might need to happen. Um, but, uh, you know, I am not too happy about uh, the idea that my files are subject to who knows what. Um, and I will actually start considering, I'm going to consider using a different service uh, because of it. And I, right. hope more, I, hope more, I hope more people do the same. I think more people are. Um, two final points on this. Uh, one is is along the lines of other people, other people, you know, dropping out of services. This doesn't have to do with Dropbox, but Scott Bourne, who is a photographer and uh, blogger and looks hard at terms of service for this very reason, uh, because he makes his livelihood off of what he produces, uh, both in still images and video, uh, took a look at the Google Plus terms of service and decided not that they were too broad as far as the license granted to Google Plus, but I guess if I'm interpreting him correctly, um, that it grants them a license at all because uh, he needs to be able to, in his business, grant exclusive license from, licenses from time to time. And that's something I just hadn't even thought of until he brought it up, that you know, the more that you are using these sharing services, uh, the more you are preventing yourself from being able to grant an exclusive license, because you certainly are licensing your work in one way or another, bro- more broadly or narrowly, you know, depending on the terms, when you use these. That, that's um, a good th- point. I'd interrupt you, but that's a really good point, because you know, I'm a photographer, too, and I'm actually looking at Scott mm-hmm. Bourne's. I believe that's his photograph on the wall. It's the, the birds. It's, it's absolutely mm-hmm. lovely. Um, but, you know, I have to be able to grant uh, a license to someone. And do I have to put an asterisk next to, um, you know, it's somewhere in my contract or my, in the license that says, by the way, I've also shared this on Google Plus and there's a good chance that there's going to be a problem in the future? <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. It's a conundrum, yeah. Right. 
And then the other conundrum that this all raises is, you know, Dropbox kind of backing and filling has added some language now to its terms that says, to be clear, aside from the rare exceptions we identify in our privacy policy, no matter how the service has changed, we won't share your content with others, including law enforcement, for any purpose unless you direct us to. But again, as Chris Fulmer pointed out over on his blog, when you go to the privacy policy and look at those, you know, rare exceptions that they call out, they specify, oh, well, we can disclose your, part, your files, you know, in the event we must comply with a law, regulation, or a compulsory legal request. And, of course, they must do that. You know, that's what the law requires them to do. So it is, I think, a delicate balance that has to be um, settled on in, in notifying users that, you know, we're, we're going to do the bare minimum that we need to do uh, and not more than that and have them understand what that bare minimum is. Um, let's talk for a minute about uh, the Google universe since it has been so uh, in the news and on people's minds with the launch of Google Plus this week. And uh, one thing that has come up for a couple of people is uh, that their children who were using Gmail in violation, I should add, of Gmail's terms of service because uh, in order to have an account on Gmail, you must be over the age of 13, and that's required by federal law under COPPA. Um, so they've had, there are people there you know, who are under 13, just like there are millions of people on Facebook who are under 13, uh, who are either there with their parents' consent or without it. But when they go to create a Google Plus account, they're getting flagged, and their Google uh, Gmail accounts are also getting, you know, they're being notified they're not going to be able to use that service anymore because they are violating the terms of service. Apparently, to be in the field test for Google+, Plus, you have to be 18. So um, it's double-checking your birthday, and uh, you're not allowed to use Google+. Plus. And then as an added slap in the face, you're, you're unauthorized, uh, less-than-13-year-old uh, Gmail account is going away. And that's been... Um, very traumatic for some people and it's also you know sort of a, a an irony if you will uh, because of Google's advertising campaign uh, a little while back that people you know liked a great deal I liked it so much I actually was inspired by it to do something similar for my child and that is um, the email account for Sophie campaign and uh, I think we might have a bit of that to play Burke if you uh, possibly can it's um, the commercial, if uh, you don't recall it, where there's a dad whose little girl is um, growing up and he is sending emails to her account, you know, attaching photos and little memories along the way. It becomes a sort of video and text uh, diary for her to presumably at some point down the road when it actually becomes her own email account, uh, she can pull up and enjoy these things. But... Uh, that commercial assumes that, uh, I guess, the child is not actually in control of the account, that it's just being held in trust for her or something. Um, so we have uh, a bunch of angry parents out there. Martin Sutherland, who is at SunPig on Twitter, um, has his son, Alex, who uh, actually you know, was quite traumatized about all this. He'd been using Gmail to correspond with his uh, grandparents, etc., and with his parents' permission, and now he's he's finding that he's going to be locked out of that account, um, and they are wondering, you know, how he can get his data out, etc. 
Thank you, Data Liberation Front over at Google for providing instructions about that should um, this kind of thing happen. So uh, I want to toss it out there. Um, Evan, do you think that this is uh, something that we're just going to have to deal with because of COPPA, or is there a way to reconcile these underaged accounts? If we're going to reconcile them, there needs to be some more clarity on how they actually could reconcile this or how this actually could be reconciled. Because, you know, I really am having a hard time believing that the uh, Dear Sophie ad campaign uh, was launched and done without thinking through the legal issues and the potential at least apparent contradictions or, or, you know, apparent possible violations between the terms of service. And what we're hearing from Google's, what we heard from Google's spokespeople, spokesperson after that, this, the Google, or the, the Sophie ad came out in like May. Um, I think that's some, some post hoc uh, rationalization for this. And, you know, I think a lot of times we think, oh, you know, Google has all these smart people and these smart lawyers and smart engineers. They could possibly do no wrong. Uh, they, of course, had thought this through. I think they may have gotten caught a little bit here because I have a very hard time uh, watching that commercial and seeing how it was supposed to be clear to us how you could actually do this. And and, and along those points, there are a couple of, of interesting things along this that, that really underlie the um, you know some of the, the tension with all of this. If if Google's explanation is well, you know, you can go ahead as a parent and start this up, and and as you characterized it, Denise, kind of hold it in trust. That's okay, but if you're going to hold it in trust, that seems to presuppose or it seems to anticipate that you're eventually going to turn that over. And there are a couple of interesting points along this. Some terms of service say that you know they make the user promise that you will not allow anyone else to use your authentication credentials to use the service uh, the provision or the Google's terms of service do not have anything like that there is a um, a section called uh, section six in Google's terms of service called about is called your passwords and account security that's where it would be if if the terms of service did say that it's like you shall not let anyone else and if you let anyone else use your login your authentication credentials that's a violation we can terminate you they say you agree to that you will be solely responsible for all the activities that occur under your account so that tends to suggest at least a little bit that you could as a parent let your kids use your your email account or whatever or an account that you are actually vouching for but later on in the terms of service um, and I, I should have flagged this so that I could actually talk about it there's something that says that um, that you have a, a non-assignable uh, right to use the mm. service that you mm -hmm. can't actually do that so it's right. saying it in a more subtle way, kind of just sneaking it in there. So this, my point is, if we're going to reconcile what's obviously a conundrum here, and there may be an egg on people's face in the, the, the marketing department who let out the Dear Sophie commercial, um, we've got to just... Or in the legal department who didn't catch it. That's right. Or the fact that they didn't talk to one another enough. Um, you know, we've just got to, we've got to just clarify this. It's it's not an irresolvable problem. This is a minor issue. We can we can do it. But I'm I'm uh, glad that it, it's come to light with uh, with this. And it's very unfortunate that poor Alex uh, overseas somewhere uh, lost his his Gmail account. Well, well, come on, Google, do the right thing. Just give him his his stuff back. You know, I'd like to point out that uh, my dog Gadget uh, has a, an email account as well. Um, it's, Probably it's, not much longer now that you've said it here. Well, you don't. I didn't tell you what it is. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to until you said that. That's funny. Um, but I'm never going to assign it to Gadget. It's just a, a thing that I use to you know, you know, kind of jokingly um, communicate to the outside world from his vantage point. Um, <laughs> kind of like giving Gadget a Twitter account. Well, it, well he actually has a Twitter account as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he does. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I see this issue as being something that's going to be resolved rel- relatively soon. Um, and I, I, I don't really see this big deal. I'm kind of with Evan on this. I don't think it's yeah. going to be a, a problem uh, getting legal to communicate with uh, the engineers and the developers and the marketing team. I think it's just a, an oversight. Yeah, it's tough. You, you basically have the, the decision to lie about your kid's age if you want to get them an email account early. And there is some... Uh, sort of branding slash, you know, getting them a good name issue that can come into play there. Um, or you, uh, as Evan points out, you're violating their terms by assuming that you're going to assign it later on. Um, any thoughts, Anna? You know, I was listening to you, Evan, and I was thinking about, perhaps you know this, you said that there was a, the Google Liberation frontier or something that would help him get his data back. But I'm wondering, you know, that does bring back all of the copyright and trademark issues. Um, If you're storing photos, if you're sending photos, if you're composing letters or poems, you know, to your grandparents as a child, and uh, Google effectively seizes your data, what are the implications of that? You know, if, if they're not allowing, it sounds like they are allowing uh, the parents to recover that data. But Well, the parents were a little frustrated with, you know, what might be involved there. Unfortunately, um, Gmail is not part of the um, very nice Google takeout tool that was released, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, uh, by the Data Liberation Front, which is an organization within Google. Um, And it's got a number of services in it, including Buzz and Google+. But Gmail's not there, I'm I'm sure, because it's such a huge undertaking to be able to include Gmail. But when you go to the Data Liberation Front, dataliberation.org, I believe it is. Let's see, I've got the URL here somewhere. Yes, dataliberation.org. They have some nice instructions on, you know, basically a workaround. It's not part of Google Takeout yet. Uh, but there are ways you can get your data out of Gmail. You need to be um, fairly sophisticated, I guess, to find those instructions and then carry them out. Uh, but here, you know, I'm encouraged because they um, described Alex, the child who's losing his account, uh, in some detail. And he's actually a Python programmer and, you know, knows his way around the web. So um, hopefully they can uh, they can work with that and make sure that he doesn't lose his data in this process. Um, so if uh, we don't have any other thoughts on that point, I'd like to get to our resource of the week. Well, I'd like to answer Virgil. Oh, sorry. Go on ahead. That. Virgil uh, wanted to know if it was GoGo Gadget at Twitter. It's actually just uh, G Koken. Nice and simple, G Koken. So G-Koken. that's that's his Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a good enough start that you just gave the dog the last name, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, for our resource of the week, we have a couple of other videos that I'm hoping we can uh, show or just remind people of. And it is, um, I don't know if you remember back to when we had Nina Paley on This Week in Law, but she did a little rendition for us. We sort of got uh, the first look at her song, Give Credit Where Credit is Due. And uh, so now she's got the song... Um, 
done and edited, and it's up on her blog at ninapaley.com. And uh, my tip to you is if you find someone is using your work online without your authorization, perhaps your first step in uh, addressing that would be to send them a link to Nita's video, which is as a gentle reminder that... uh, if you are not Ludwig von Beethoven, you shouldn't um, pretend that you are and appropriate somebody's work without permission. And she uh, she does a very nice job with her trademark anim- animation. There's some of it right there. how she points out that the interwebs will come after you if you do this yeah that's really uh the motivation don't don't worry so much about uh the law but uh or or you'll have to or you'll have to watch that uh copyright school video that google put out a couple weeks ago i want to see that actually i want to does anyone have a copy of that or is there a way you can watch copyright school video yeah i'd like to see that i've heard funny things about it no, I haven't been hauled into copy, copyright school yet. But you're not uh, missing a lot. <laughs> if when I do, I'll I'll uh, send you the link. Thank you, thank you. Right, and our our tip of the week has to do with the story that we were just discussing. Um, what is it that you should do? How can you give your little Sophie or Alex uh, an email account? And uh, my tip is what I did uh, for my son, and that is I used uh, one of our good friends and uh, sometimes sponsors here on Twit Hover to create a custom email address for my child, which you can do over there quite easily. Um, and then, you know, they have their own little email service over there that I don't think is meant to replace or be a service that you would use in lieu of Gmail or anything else. It's just, you know, something to use if you don't have anything else. And um, we have a, a Tyler account for him that's simply, you know, an account that's actually... Uh, under my account, so I don't believe I am violating any terms by giving him his own um, address, custom address. And so I'm sending his Sophie-type emails to that address, and it's really nice to be able to send photos and uh, remembrances of things as they're happening in real time, and we have a little record there. And then when he's 13, what I'm going to do is go through the process of actually linking that up to a service like Gmail and so all his stuff will be there and come in and he'll be in compliance with their terms of service. So that's my solution. Um, you know, I, I just thought of another way to get around the Google thing if you, mm-hmm. if you have 30 seconds to hear about it. Absolutely. Well, you, since these rights are non-assignable, Google gives you a, and it's in section 10.1 of the Google terms of service, you can have this personal non-assignable right. What you could do is form a corporation and then have that corporation sign up for the Gmail account, and then both you and your child, once he or she reaches the reaches the appropriate age, could be authorized by that corporation, either as an employee or an independent contractor or something like that, so that you would both be authorized as agents of that of that corporation. So that's how to do it. I yeah, think. that that takes a little bit of love, right there, huh? Right. <laughs> your children will never say that you don't care. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Proof. Evan Brown's kid, a Delaware corporation. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is um, I'm, I'm wor- wondering in all of this, 
because kids, you know, it's nice to be able to give them email accounts if they're ready for them, but they get phones a whole lot younger than they um, are lawfully empowered to have email accounts, and they are texting right and left, and um, sometimes in ways that uh, we don't necessarily approve of. So, you know, I, I have not looked hard at uh, the cellular providers' terms of service as far as kids texting, but, you're, you know, you're certainly able to give your kid a phone, and then they use all its features, so... Uh, another little conundrum there to consider. Um, and with that, I think, uh, leaving you with some little food for thought, we will go ahead and call this a show. I'll go around once and see if we have any final comments from the panel. Daniel? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, just thanks so much for having us on the show. It's It's been a great experience, a real honor, um, and I hope to meet Leo, but he wasn't here, and I'm not happy yeah, Friday's about that. His day Why off. do you think I drove all the way over here, Leo? <laughs> Huh? Um, but but uh, I I I just want uh, to kind of leave you guys with this one thought that uh, you know I'm I'm just trying to going back to the the case you know I'm just trying to to protect my property you know I some people choose to start companies and and develop products and go through that whole process and there's a tremendous amount of energy that went into that whole process and I'm just trying to maintain ownership of what's rightfully mine and uh, I I really hope that everyone else in a similar position does the same thanks very much and uh, folks uh, off the show you can find Daniel he's on Twitter at uh, let's see you are Daniel Koken on Twitter if I'm not mistaken correct and Sector Labs is your company anything else you want to uh, tell people about how to reach you or where to follow you off the show? No, that, that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm also a, a photographer and I, I blog at uh, danielkoken.com. Um, and uh, one, one quick little plug um, project that I'm uh, currently working on, it's, uh, uh, I'm also trying to uh, take on the coffee industry um, and uh, developed a, a coffee cup that eliminates a lot of waste. And, uh, and you know, seeing that most of the people listening to this show are coffee drinkers. Fifty uh, percent of you guys are, are and women um, probably add milk and cream to your coffee, and that means that you dump some of your coffee in the garbage. And uh, I've done the math, and it turns out that we're wasting billions of gallons of, of water and millions of gallons of coffee because of people dumping a little bit of coffee in the garbage. So learn more about the solution uh, at roomforward.org. That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, Anna, thank you for joining us, too. Thank you, Denise. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and talking with you and Evan and Daniel. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to reaffirm that I have very much enjoyed representing Daniel. And what I think we're doing here is really important. Something that Evan mentioned earlier is really bringing this back to the consumer protection point of view. That is what trademark law is about. It's not necessarily about Apple's proprietary information or even Sector Lab's proprietary information. It's really about ensuring that consumers aren't confused as to the origin of goods. And I think that what we're doing here is hopefully going to be really helpful in a allowing the TTAB and other courts to clarify that issue. Great. And congratulations on uh, getting involved in such a fun first case right Thank out you. Of Thank you. Uh, Evan, any final thoughts before we wrap? Uh, nothing other than this has just really been a, a fun show. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Daniel. Uh, you know, what, uh, what a great, uh, what great 
stuff you have uh, going on there. Really interesting. You're a great guy. Uh, excited to see how things turn out. Anna, uh, you know, great, great talking with you as well. You know, you're uh, doing a great thing by, by helping, out, uh, helping out Daniel and all of this. And so I've just really enjoyed the dynamics of this conversation and, you know, just am, am very grateful to have, have had the opportunity. So uh, a lot of fun. All right, so it's time for everyone to get back to their Google Plus. I hope we haven't distracted you too long from that. Yeah, and send me that invite. Oh, oh, yes. oh I would, I would be. I have to say something, uh, Mom, Pop. I love you very, very, very much. <laughs> very much. Okay. There Please continue, go. Denise. <laughs> and we'll be, we'll be sure and get them invites too, so they Please. can follow right along with you. Um, Evan, you have to activate yours. I'm I'm frustrated with the fact that you're not in there yet. Oh, you know what? I mean, I'm not going to go on with this. This has come at the worst possible time for me because I just deactivated my Facebook account last week. Outstanding! Congratulations! And um, so now I am really going through. So you know, I said I began the show with some existential angst. That's really (laughs) what it is. I love Twitter. I'm still an ad. I'll be a blogger until the day I die. But you know the social media stuff. I'm still, I'm, you know, the, the intense social networking stuff. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out where that that falls into my life. So to be continued. All right. Well, you at least have to kick the tires on Google Plus because it is not Facebook. Okay. That is the the beginning and perhaps the end of the description of that service. <laughs> All right. Uh, so thanks everyone for joining us here on this week in law. You can find Evan, of course. He is at Internet Cases on Twitter and InternetCases.com when he's not joining us here on the show. When um, when we're not here on the show, you can find me. I'm at Denise at Twit.tv. I'm also D Howell on Twitter. We have a This Week in Law page on Facebook. And uh, we're, you know, in the, um, I've sent in my form to be a brand, uh, you know, in the testing phase on uh, Google Plus. But, you know, who knows? They might want to give it to people like Ford and uh, others. (laughs) So I won't hold that against them, but it will uh, be fun when they open up that functionality, too. In the meantime, uh, you can find me there as well. And uh, we really look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.